Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we talk to a firecracker of an agent, Mr. Ed Wilson. He's a literary agent. He's also the director of Johnson & Alcock, a London literary agency. He regularly runs the Guardian Masterclass, How to Get Published. In this conversation with Ed, we discuss the relationship between agents and authors, how writers can discern if an agency is right for them, and what makes a submission command an agent's attention. Ed is a straight shooter. He tells us about what he's looking for, why he can't say yes to everybody, and the state of the publishing industry. Let's begin, shall we? We hope you enjoy our conversation with Ed Wilson. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writers Salon, Ed. Hello! Uh, I'm delighted delighted to be here. I feel with people all around the world, I feel everyone's going to be having very different experiences. Is anyone in the Far East who's kind of on the wine? And then everyone in Europe is on the tea. And then if you're just having your kind of breakfast smoothie, then I'll speak quietly and slowly. <laughs> Thank you for being so considerate of the different time zones. I really appreciate that. I would love to start by asking you about your Twitter handle, Literary Hall. Presumably that's the title you chose in your earlier publishing days. Yeah, in the early days of Twitter as well, when no one really knew what it was for. And I wish there was some great sort of ideological position behind it. But sadly, I don't think I even know how to change it or what I would change it to. So I'm a firm believer in just leaving things alone. It's interesting. Like Twitter has obviously had its ups and downs. It's something that I used a lot when I was really establishing myself as an agent. Now it's probably less less of a factor. I don't need to brand build in the same way. It's just for talking to some authors, meeting some new people and just generally being being positive and friendly. Great. Well, we're so pleased and honored to have you here with us and spend this hour with us. So we were studying you, your career up. You and Parl knew each other from way back, but I got to learn learn about you a bit. And so you were a bookseller and editorial assistant at HarperCollins, I believe, in your early days of publishing. Do you remember what you were dreaming of in those early days, like what you imagined for yourself in your career? I, I mean, I don't think as a 20-year-old, I dreamt of anything. It was, um, it's a strange one. Agenting is an odd bit of the industry. Until you're within publishing or trying to find an agent, it's not a job that anyone knows exists. And certainly when I was coming out of university, literary agents were, were not on my radar at all. So I'd already worked as a bookseller at Waterstones. Pretty much everybody in publishing at some point has worked as a bookseller at Waterstones. It's a sort of it's a little badge you all have to have. I Coming out of university, I interned with different publishers and ended up at HarperCollins, at which point... My boss at the time steered me towards agenting. At the time, I thought this was a great compliment. What he actually meant was that I was not going to function within a corporate environment and that I needed to go where all the um, 
more idiosyncratic people were, which is agent. Essentially, literary agents are all unmanageable human beings. And he had me pegged from the start. But I think it's really important that anyone within a, an industry understands the different bits of that industry. And I've done various of the different jobs and happen to love this one. So I'm sticking. And so back in 2007, you did your internship, as you said, for various publishers, but also Johnson & Olcott, the agency you're at now. And that turned into an agent role. And I'm curious, just to stick a little bit to the early days, what did the role of a newbie agent look like? What were you doing back in those days that perhaps you're not doing now? Ooh, that's a very interesting. A lot more faxing. We don't actually have a fax machine anymore. I had, when I first started, there were a couple of authors who only communicated through fax. So I was really good. A brilliant writer called Elaine Dundee. I don't know if you if she's, I'm no longer with us, sadly. But Elaine solely communicated by fax. Jenny Joseph, the poet, again. So the industry from 2007 to now has radically changed. Now everything is digital. All of our contracts are online. We sign everything online. Back then, it was a lot of printing stuff out and filing. I used to leave the office with a backpack that was full of a large chunk of paper that was a book that I had to read. Whereas now we have Kindles. The whole thing is much more fluid. The fundamentals of the job are still the same. And as an assistant and as a junior agent, you spend a lot of time reading and a lot of time doing admin. Most jobs involve emails and it's kind of no different, really. As time has moved on and I've got more senior, my list has got bigger. So I spend more time maintaining those clients and less time hunting for new ones. But I'm always hunting. And anyone who wants to send me stuff, please send me stuff. I don't understand agents who say I'm not taking on new clients at the moment. They are really. We're always taking on new clients. We just want to try and reduce the white noise of it. Mm. Um, when you talk about what the younger junior agents do, you see they do a lot, of more, a lot more reading back in, in that stage of their career. Is there any reason that a writer who's submitting to agents shouldn't consider going with a junior agent? Or do you think that can work just as well? It can work just as well. I mean, there's no point in going for, you know, one of the real kind of grey beards because they're not going to be interested in working hard. I mean that in the nicest way. I intend to be a grey beard. And at that point, I won't be interested in working hard. I think there is a trajectory. An agent starts off with no clients. Now, I was very lucky that I inherited some estates and some older clients from my then boss. So I didn't start with a completely clean slate. So I then had, I had a certain amount of work to do, and then I could supplement that with new authors when I felt I had the time and the experience. But you need to, there's no point in signing up with an agent who has no client list at all, because they can work as hard as they want. Nobody, they don't have any track record. They are not going to be able to sell your book until they've made some inroads into the industry. I think someone anywhere in between the two, you know, don't get them on day one, don't get them on day 365. Like find, find someone in the middle and find the personality fit. I think that's the most important thing. Mm. I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into the, these emails, these very exciting emails you talk about that, that entail most of your job. What are they? Like what, and maybe a volume, how many emails are you getting a day and what actually are the, do these entail? If you can give us a peek. I don't know. I find it very hard. I don't want to depress people. Submissions, I get between 70 and 100 a week submissions. Now, of those, a decent number of them are blind copied ones or ones that are not suitable. Or, But there's usually somewhere between 50 and 70 that are actual submissions that I need to read. On top of that, I have all the admin that surrounds my existing client list. And that is contracts for UK, US, translation deals, film and television, media requests, and kind of AOB, so lots of other stuff around the running the business, 
um, internal communications with my colleagues, just the normal office stuff. And I think that we're all drowning under emails. That's what life is. Some people are very organized. Sadly, I am not very organized. But usually there is a way of working out what is the most important and sort of prioritizing. And a lot of my job is about prioritizing. Sometimes I fail, I'm afraid. If anybody submitted their book to me and I haven't got back to you, I'm very sorry. Let me know and I'll jump on it. But it's um, there is just a volume of correspondence associated with getting a book published, editing books with authors, and it sort of fills up and uh, sometimes can feel a little overwhelming. But I think that's true of everyone. Totally. And it's really nice to get a peek into your world because writers on the other side, we're thinking about our book and it feels so important and we send it to you and to know that actually there's a hundred other emails that you've received that day. So it helps, I guess, us give us a little more empathy. And we want to go deep into maybe how we as writers can can grab your attention a little bit better. But one question I do want to ask if like one of these writers who hasn't heard from you or a similar agent, a lot of there's a lot of stress that people can have around reaching back out. And should I reach out? It's been a month. What's your philosophy on that? We're pretty clear on the website. So the volume of submissions we receive, we can't respond on the point of receipt. That would be a full-time job in itself. There is also quite a lot of emails that don't get through that someone's mistyped the email address or the spam filter has had some sort of breakout. I mean, we try and minimize that. We usually say that if you haven't heard after, I think the website says two to three months, then a friendly chase is perfectly acceptable. If you don't hear from the friendly chase, then that's entirely on me. And you can do another friendly chase then. And I do try and get back to people. You know, the thing is that the agents are human. Some agents have outsourced the reading of submissions entirely. We as an agency don't do that. I want to read all the submissions myself. And so you have to rely on the fact that I'm one human being with one set of eyes. And there's a finite amount of time. I think the main thing is just remember, you're not dealing with an agent, you're dealing with a human being who is fallible. And sometimes, sometimes we'll miss something and we'll always have the best intentions. Most of it is just behaving like a human. I mean, that's part of it. I will always treat the author submitting to me with respect and the kind of hope that it goes both ways. You said that, um, I read that somewhere that you don't specialise in a particular genre. You're quite open to lots of different types of stories. Can you describe what you're looking for with your submissions, I reckon? No, I can't. Sorry. No, it's, um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I I love reading. I love, God, that's so banal, isn't it? I, I just love reading. <laughs> we'll take it. Put that on my gravestone. Um, but I genuinely get, you would think after, I've been doing this for like 15 years, basically, as an agent. You would think by this stage, I'd be jaded and bored of it. And there are some mornings I wake up and I'm like, I can never read another thing. But I just, I love the excitement of read something new and something exciting and seeing something I haven't seen before. So I do everything. And I mean, I mean, I don't don't do a huge amount of children's at the moment, just because it's a whole different world. I don't represent a lot of saga writers, just because I don't read many sagas. So I don't know that market so well. Beyond that, I mean, anything, if you think it's got a reason that it would appeal to me, then send it all over. I love science fiction and fantasy. I think Matt said uh, crime, high concept crime. My passion is the really crunchy literary stuff. But unfortunately, that is a hard area of the market, so I can't take on a huge amount. But I think what I want is an author who has the confidence to know what they're writing is unique, understands enough about the business of publishing to work out how to make that unique thing into something that they can work with an agent and a publisher on, but also a person who I'm going to enjoy interacting with. You know, my authors are not my friends, but 
authors with whom I have an ongoing relationship become friends. You know, I've been to my author's weddings. I've been to their funerals. I've had a dog named after me. I had a car named after me, but then the car broke down. So I'm not reading too much into that. But the relationship is a weird one. It's professional, but it's personal. You know, I know my authors, partners, parents, children, but at the same time, we have to talk about contracts and money. So, you know, it's, I don't think that was an answer to the question, was it? Sorry. It's Well, you basically said that you're open to everything, everything. really. You're just looking for a strong voice and for someone who's confident in what they're submitting. Yes. Feeling like pirates at the moment. Is that weird? It's good to know. I'm going to get six million pirate books. Yeah. If anyone's writing a pirate story. It's a pirate. I think pirates, are, I, think pirates are, I think pirates are good. But that's it. I want to be surprised by an author. And that doesn't mean send me something, something completely insane. Like, that's not good surprise. It's more about somebody coming to me with a new take on something that exists. And then it all comes down to the writing. You know, many pitches I've loved. You open it up and start reading and, and it lets you down. That one in however many, one in a hundred, one in a thousand that you start reading and it's better than you were expecting. It's a wonderful thing. So I'd love to just go behind the desk with you and understand how you make decisions about choosing manuscripts. So as you say, you received 70 to 100 a week. You take on very few, I think maybe one a month Uh, or so. Depends. It it depends enormously. I'm curious, is this something that you've recently loved and taken on? And can you just tell us why? Tell us what you thought when that manuscript came into your submissions and why you decided it was a book that you had to represent and an author you had to represent. Okay, interesting. So I do quite a lot of, um, I do different talks and I work with universities, creative writing schools and different things. So there is a writer who I've signed up recently who I won't name because I don't want, it's not a personal thing, but basically is um, writes literary fiction and it's short stories, which is very, very uncool at the moment. But the stories are all about, um, about kind of perception of self, about the body and particularly talking about female body image and the experience of the modern world and the male gaze and things like that. Now, I'm obviously, I'm the problem. I'm, you know, a straight white male functioning in publishing and one of the gatekeepers who doesn't really get it. But there was something about her writing that just was so shocking and so brilliant that I just kept on reading. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm not the right agent for this because I'm clearly not. But at the same time, something very compelling about her writing. And it ended up with me meeting up and us having a conversation, working with her on some of the stories and eventually me signing her up. And it's a book I'll be sending out. Now, in that situation, I was not looking for literary fiction particularly. I was certainly not looking for a book like that that has an aggressive side to it that is combative and challenging. You know, it's easy to to age of the, the the easy stuff you know another 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 crime novel that fits into a certain box every now and then i want to do something that is going to have a different impact and i think that is a situation where over time the relationship built to a point where i knew that i was the right person for it there was no question about the talent of the author and that has to be the starting point i can't teach someone how to write i'm not going to pretend to but in that situation Part of it was the patience that both author and agent showed to get to know each other better, to understand the way that they work together, and to see how the two skill sets were complementary, so that we'll end up with something that I will be sending out to publishers probably in the next month or so. Now, very rarely will I get sent a submission that is perfect, and that I say, don't touch a word, I'm going straight out with it. Usually, there is a a gestation uh, process that's really how you work out if you're the right fit. And I think there is a danger 
I think, if an author is querying with agents, that the first person who responds is the one they're like, I have to sign straight away, immediately. I think sometimes patience is very important. If one agent likes your writing, others will too. You just have to wait. And I think that because I'm in a lucky position that I'm, you know, I'm senior within the agency, I can have the time and the patience to allow things to develop. And such such good advice. I'm curious if you get a query, a pitch that is really great, has your attention, but like you said, just the writing isn't there. How are you responding to that? I imagine you're not saying, hey, this is not very good. You need to work on your crafts. But if someone's curious because someone might be receiving that to know, how do I know that that's actually why it's not being accepted? What sort of response do you give? I try to be straightforward. If there's somebody who is a brilliant writer and the idea is no good, then if I see something, then that is the start of a conversation. Some authors I've signed up on the second book they've sent me on the third because they're a good writer who just needs the right idea and needs honing. If somebody's got a great pitch, but the writing's not up to scratch, I mean, like I said, I can't, I'm not a creative writing teacher. I can edit, but the essentials need to be there. So it's a tricky one. Yeah, I would never give false hope to an author who I don't think is a good enough writer to make it. But at the same time, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be mean. Human beings, it goes both ways. So I will always try and be constructive, even if ultimately the answers are no. And I wish I was able to do that to every book I see that isn't quite there. But I, ju- I just, I don't have the time. Like I said, that's not even a full-time job. That's about three full-time jobs. Right. Yeah. So supportive and encouraging, you know, and I think what you said, you know, you've got to work on the craft. Mm. If there's something constructive, then I'll always say it. Yeah. The thing that I cannot do and that I'd be very, very mindful of not doing is giving false hope to somebody who ultimately I know I won't take on. Yeah. Imagine that's really, really difficult to re- reply to those, especially at that the volume you receive. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the query pitch letter. And this is particularly apt for us because we just launched a a four-week query writing course that starts next week. And we just announced it yesterday. We'll share a link to it later. But we've heard you say that people overthink the query pitch letter. And for those of you who don't know, query letter is basically like a covering letter in email that is the introduction to someone like Ed. But you've said that people overthink it and you think that it's used as displacement People are anxious about it, but you think it's because they're actually anxious about their book. And I'm curious, how do you think people should be thinking about that query letter, that pitch that might be simpler or maybe less anxiety producing for them? I think display, that was very wise of me, whichever past version of myself said that. No, it's, but it's true. The book is the thing. And that's something that sometimes because of the, because of the process of submission, you get so caught up in in the idea of the covering email and the synopsis. And we'll get onto the synopses as well. The book is the reason you're going to get signed. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to get someone's attention so that they read your book. And that's a very simple purpose. The submissions that come in, most of them get swiped straight away into a submissions inbox. So there is a a split second where you can catch my attention. Thinking about approaching someone in the most eye-catching way and seeing if you can just get lucky you need to foreground the thing that is the most selling and the most commercial about your book. If you have a point of reference, if you know one of my authors, if you've attended a talk I did or anything like that, that's a way to at least, it's, it's different to the, dear Mr. Wilson, I'm sending you my book. I think the idea that you need to hone this kind of the epic letter that will open the door to your writing future is nonsense. I'm going to read that letter, but all it needs to do is make me want to read the chapters. One purpose alone. And don't go for the, please find attach my book, yours, blah, blah, blah. 
because that's too short. But at the same time, you don't need to worry about sending in something too long. I have a tiny little box in my emails, which is all I see, the preview. So that's what you're working with, three centimetres. And in the fullness of time, if it goes into the submissions inbox, I will consider it in a slightly longer term way. So I'll have a chance to read the whole thing and move on. If you're looking to catch someone's attention, then give it a go. Think what is the most eye-catching aspect of this submission and make sure that's at the forefront. And don't even get me started on synopses. God, I hate synopses. Everyone hates synopses. Uh, Everybody. It's as if you knew what the next question was going to be about. <laughs> Almost exactly. But I would say that anyway. Everyone hates them. They're just inherent. They're like, oh, you've spent two years writing a 90,000-word book. Could you now sum it up in one page of A4? It's like, well, no, of course you can't. Ridiculous. The only people who like them are people in the film and TV world, and that's because they can't be bothered to read the book. Mm. It's like, again, like you have to write one because we ask for it, you know, as a form of torture, I think. But don't agonize over that. The synopsis doesn't, isn't going to make me sign you up. The book is. So the time that you are spending agonizing about your covering letter and your synopsis, spend that working on your book. Mm. That's my advice. Beautiful advice. And hopefully it makes people feel a little better who are stressing about their synopsis. But I'm curious if anyone, it, you maybe you've lightened the load a little bit, but they still know this is something I have to create. And maybe they're about to start writing their synopsis. Do you have any tips for a good way in for someone to start that synopsis or any resources, any tools to help people be less anxious about it, but just get it out there? Yeah, I'm not sure about tools. I mean, I'm very lucky. I, I've not, I'm one of the few people in publishing who isn't currently writing a book. Everybody else seems to be. I don't know. I think condensing it, the problem is that if you've written the whole thing, you know too much. You almost need to get someone else to write the synopsis. The idea of just hitting the key elements of it, there's no need for a great level of detail. It is a simply what happens in the book. And I think divorcing you from a sense of what the style is, it's very difficult to convey tone as well. Just putting down a skeleton breakdown of the plot and then embellish slightly so that you feel it is selling enough. I think that's probably about it. I mean, aside of A4, you're obviously going to miss out some of the details because it's a side of A4. I think that's probably about all you need to worry about. I don't read synopses until after I've read the chapters. So if your covering email grabs me, I'll go straight into the chapters. If I devour those, then I'll have a look in the synopsis. And I'm really just making sure that it doesn't go completely batshit in the second half. I mean, that's a technical publishing term, but you know, that's it. You just want to make sure that the narrative arc continues on the trajectory you've already started. And, you know, then I will email you and say, send me the whole thing. At which point I'll discover you lied in your synopsis and it does go batshit. But that's, you have to remember the experience of the person going through. It's about a consistency of voice. So the email needs to be in the same voice as the chapters in the synopsis. So it flows through. And then I have no choice. All I can do is email you back or phone you up and be like, I love that. Please send it to me. You know, that's what you're trying to do. And it does happen. Yeah, that's really helpful to hear it from your point of view. I'd love to talk about the craft again. You spoke about how people should be spending their time on the book, working on the craft of the book, rather than over worrying about the synopsis and the query letter. And I suppose this brings me to the question of when writers approach agents actually not ready, they send it, the manuscript in too early. And I, I guess the question is for the writers who are considering submitting, when is the right time to send it in? How do they know that they're ready? What's your experience just across the years? What are you finding that writers need to have in place before they send it to you? Uh, that is very difficult. I think there is a there is a process. I think everybody needs some sort of support network. 
as a writer. I mean, that's exactly what the community you're building here is all about. I think writers groups, writer, write workshopping groups, even things like degree courses, to an extent you're you're learning new skills, but also you're being part of a community. And I think allowing beta readers and people who aren't, who have no vested interest in the project to have a look at it, understanding who you're sending it to, which of those people will always be too positive, which of them will be too negative. I think that helps to build a sense. I think only really you know when you're ready. I think the key is to eliminate any niggling doubts you have. So if the book has always had that soggy middle, then work with that before you send it off. If a couple of people said maybe it's a bit slow at the start, then work on the start. And, you know, if you're sending three chapters in, those three chapters, they need to have have no, no weak points in them at all. No, don't just work on the three chapters. You need to work on the whole book. But initially, and particularly if there's going to be a delay between you calling in the whole thing, then you need to hone those three chapters and then carry that through. The other thing that I see quite a lot is that people get better at writing as they are writing. So by the time you finish your book, you're better than you were at the start. So you need to immediately go back to the start and use the knowledge about your writing you've gained to make the start better. And then put it in a drawer go on holiday, do something else, go and, you know, climb some trees or whatever you do to get away, give it some space and then come back again. And you'll be like, why did I write that? That's terrible. And I think once you go through that process and you're no longer second guessing everything, that's when you're probably getting close. That's really helpful. Thank you. And say someone is sending it out, they think they're ready. They've been working on the novel. They perhaps get a fair bit of rejection and they consider maybe getting professional editorial feedback. What's your opinion on that route, getting professional editorial feedback? Okay, so rejection is part and parcel of the game. You're going to, you know, that rare thing where you get an agent first time, the agent sends it out, gets a publisher first time. Every single thing, you have amazing review coverage and everything's great. On the day your book is published, you're going to get a one-star review from some idiot who will say something horrible about it. Like, there's always going to be a rejection, and at each stage of the process, you just kind of toughen up. Professional editorial advice, I think, has a place, and a lot of it comes down to what you're willing to invest. And it is about money. So if I work with a client, I don't take money from my authors. So I can only make money by selling a book on and taking commission on that. So agents are not allowed to charge reading fees. We can't have a paid editorial service on the side, although some do. Keep an eye out for that. We have to be very, very straightforward that we're working with a client and we are risking our time and the potential that that book doesn't sell and we make nothing from it. And some do. That's part of the game. If you feel like you have exhausted every possibility, but there is something about the book that you haven't got right, and if you cannot find a way to do it without an editorial service, then look into it. And I'd say the best tool for that is to talk to your peers. So this is, again, going back to your support network. Talk to other writers who have been through different experiences and find somebody who has needed the help and got it and where they got it from. Now, that can be a £50 reader's report from an ex-editor. And you don't have to spend 10 grand on a degree course to do that. It's unfair because if you don't have the money to spend on that, then that is not an option for you. But this is part of the problem publishing has, particularly with working class writers who can't afford to pay for this. So don't get that extra polish. And that's why a lot of the places that do paid editorial services also offer bursaries and discounts and programs so that people who maybe can't afford it can still have access to it. So I'm not against it. There are some total charlatans out there. 
Of course there are, but that's not just publishing. That's every single industry. You need to verify, you need to get references, talk to people, make sure the person you're dealing with actually has a track record. Yeah, great advice. I want to turn the question to the types of writers that you take on geographically. So I think you have writers across the world. So does that mean that you're open to a writer based in any country? Yep. If you're writing in English, I mean, you have to be writing in English. I Sadly, I, I don't speak other languages. My colleague Charlotte speaks French and Italian, so she's open to writers writing in those languages. If you're writing in English, I don't. it doesn't matter where you are. I have authors in Australia and New Zealand who I've never met. I mean, I have a relationship with them, and we Zoom the entire time, but they live on the other side of the world. So no, I have authors in Canada, the USA, Botswana, Far East, uh, Australia, New Zealand. I've got one who I'm not quite sure. He was in China. I think he's in Vietnam now. Kind of lost track of him. But that's okay. Some authors do that. It doesn't matter where you are. Go wherever the water is right and your creativity is flowing. But we are, you know, it's a global industry. There's no barrier, no geographical barrier to me representing you. Well, a lot of our community, because we're global, will be very pleased to hear that. Yeah, I saw some like, all over the place from kind of both sides, which is absolutely amazing. And that's it. It is who knows? Like the place you live doesn't define you necessarily. Maybe where you were born and raised, or maybe you, you may have just ended up there. I think that's all part of the all part of the fun. We'd love to turn our questions down to the publishing industry. I'd love to use the word trends, but wait before you berate me on that. I know you don't chase trends because in publishing it takes you know years from the time someone submits to you through to publication. That's a couple of years. But I'm still curious about whether you have seen over the time you've been an agent any sort of broader shifts in what you're seeing the publishing houses looking for or willing to publish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you say, I mean, you've, you've worked in a publisher, you know, understand this. You know, if I sign an author today, I will then spend six months working on their book with them, let's say. I then It then takes me a month to sell it at that point. So, hang on, what are we, June? So, da, da. so I sell it at the end of January 2024. That book will hopefully be scheduled for spring 25, but could quite possibly be scheduled for autumn 2025 or even spring 26. You know, that's the, and that's just the hardback publication. Paperback is then after that. So there's like whatever trend has already moved on. You have to kind of guess what's going to come next. You know, there is a cyclical nature and you can see what hasn't been in for a while. And sometimes you guess right. So I represent a guy called... That Pirates? Pirates. We haven't had Pirates for ages. Well, Johnny Depp kind of killed off the Pirates of the Caribbean thing. So I feel like it's coming back. Honestly, hit me with the Pirates. I didn't even know I was looking for pirates, but now I am. But no, you can't, the genre that's been out of fashion for the longest time is the Western. And every year I'm like, this is the year of the Western. And every year it's not the year of the Western. So I don't know why the Western is the only exception to the rule. Everything else just got the, the cycle, you know, time is a flat circle, whatever. So I just have to guess what's coming down the track. There are certain perennials within the industry. You know, crime always sells. There's type of what is known as commercial women's fiction. And I apologize for that term, but that's what the publishing industry calls it. The reality is all fiction is women's fiction because there are more female readers than male. So those genres continue to, to sell and expand. And when there is an outlier, so let's say Scandi Crime, Steve Larson, Joe Nesbo, this kind of Scandi Crime boom was a thing. And then that just got subsumed into the mainstream of crime. Going back further, Chicklet. Chiclet, we don't use that term anymore. Chiclet was a thing and everyone talked about chiclet. And then suddenly that just became part of commercial women's fiction, just commercial fiction, really. Erotica, exactly the same. Like that was Fifty Shades was going to, you know, redefine the industry. Like those books had always been published. They just became a bit more acceptable. And at the moment, it's Cozy Prime. 
like breaking news, cozy crime existed before Richard Osman. Oh, got horror. You know, MC Beaton's been doing it for years and it's just it suddenly gets more attention and then it becomes part of the mainstream. So you need to know what your book is. If you're trying to fulfill a brief, then your book's probably not going to be very good. Your book needs to be something that you believe in. If you're only interested in writing X because X is hot right now, you'll have missed that trend. So think, what is that I want to write? And and if, you know, if it's within a commercial area, then if the book is good enough, then you should get published. What about nonfiction? Is this something you cover as well? Any trends or any insights? Yeah. What's the ballot? What's the ballot? I usually, because if I do these talks in person, I'm, I get people to put their hands up and tell me who's doing nonfiction or fiction. What's the balance? Let's assume 50-50. Good. That's a good assumption. Nonfiction is easier in a way because you don't have to write the whole book. It is much more normal. So you used to be able to sell novels on a partial. It's very hard now. With nonfiction, usually with a proposal and sample chapters, you can. You can sell a book. And most of them are are bought in that way. So you can commit less time. And editing a proposal, which is 10,000 words, say, is much easier than editing a novel that is 90,000 words. With nonfiction, there is, it's an objective analysis. Has anyone else written this book? If the answer is no, then it has a chance. With fiction, it's much more about a subjective choice. Do people like this? Nonfiction, you can sell a book because that book fulfills a gap in the market. Fiction, there is nothing but gaps because every book is unique and has a different angle. But then again, if you're building yourself as an author, with nonfiction, you kind of have to start from scratch with every book. Whereas if you're a novelist, there is a sense of building book on book on book on book. So it's not one's better, one's worse. They're just different things. And yes, I do both. I do both. Serious nonfiction, so like the real head scratchy stuff, is more my colleagues, Michael and Anna. I do the silly, frivolous stuff. No, I don't. I do really serious stuff as well. But I've done a book with Dame Edna. Rest in peace, Dame Edna. I did a brilliant book with Pat Sharp. This is going to confuse anybody who isn't British and was a child of the 90s. Pat Sharp was a radio DJ and an author of mine wrote a spoof autobiography of Pat Sharp, that he managed to convince Pat Sharp to himself endorse and promote. So Pat Sharp, I'm going to stop saying, Google Pat Sharp, look at his mullet. Google Pat Sharp and mullet. He managed to convince Pat Sharp to read the audio book of his own spoof autobiography. That's beautiful. How's about that? That's brilliant. Yeah, isn't it? Sounds like some fans in the chat. I'm curious about social media because this can be, people can feel really self-conscious about their social media presence when they are querying agents like you. What's your take on someone's social media presence? What's a turnoff? What's not? Anything you can offer us? Social media is really hard. I think that the idea that if you want to be a writer, you have to be good at it is nonsense. I think if you're good at social media, then you're probably already good at it. If you enjoy it, then you already enjoy it. I don't send my authors on a course to get better. Find your platform. And if your platform is no platform, then that's okay. Totally fine. I think that if you're writing a certain type of book, so if you're nonfiction and they expect you to speak to a demographic, there is an expectation now that you will have Twitter, Instagram, TikTok to an extent. There is an expectation that you will be proficient and will have a level of followers within those platforms. If you're writing a novel, then, you know, BookTok, I don't know. I'm, I'm a guy in his 40s. I don't think TikTok is meant for me. My nieces and nephews try and give me a crash course every now and then, and I just end up just feeling slightly seasick. If you want to do this stuff, then do it and get good at it. 
you writing a book is kind of separate. And if those two things combine, it's brilliant. The idea that if you want to be published, you have to have 100,000 followers on Instagram is nonsense. Great if you do, but it's not a problem if you don't. And I think the part of the part of the problem is it, it is very exclusionary. You know, you have to, the nature of these things is each platform has its kind of median age. And I speak to a lot of my sort of older writers who are just like, what am I supposed to do? I don't want to, I don't want to suddenly become a, an Instagram sensation and learn this entirely new like language. And the answer to that is no, you don't have to. Your publisher will do it for you. Really, really helpful advice. Just a quick time check, everyone. So we have about five more minutes of our questions, and then we will turn it over to you. And we have seen a bunch of questions coming into the chat. So if you do have a question for Ed, following, yes, now is I've got the questions down. I've got the the chat box down the side. This is excellent. TikTok is amazing. Everyone, no, to be fair, I sound like an I sound like an old person now. I'm totally down. I think we're TikTok. with you on the t- on TikTok. I think yeah. I'm with you there. Just hurts my head. Yeah, agreed. Like genuinely hurts my head. And I've got an author, a guy called Matthew Brennan, who wrote the authorized biography of TikTok. A uh, brilliant book. He self-published it. And we do the foreign rights and the translation rights. It's really interesting. You read about that and you realize that what a deeply problematic company it is. And when TikTok started up a UK office, they were buying copies of his self-published book to give to all the new starters, even though the book is highly critical of it. They're like, yeah, it's all true. Why not? Danger, danger. It will be banned at some point. I want to read that book. It sounds great. Hello listeners, just a note from us at the London Writers' Salon. Our interviews are recorded in front of a live online audience. And so at this point in the interview, we turn to audience questions. Would you like to be a part of the live audience and ask your own questions? Head to londonwriterssalon.com for more information. You can buy tickets to the online events or get free access to them as a member. Now, back to the interview. I want to talk about something I heard you say in a podcast where you talked about corporate literary agencies and you said that sometimes, I'm guessing this is not for everyone, some writers can be treated like a commodity in a larger agency. And I wondered if you could expand on this in any way that feels comfortable to you. Like, how should a writer make a decision between a smaller agency and a larger agency? You're just You're trying to goad me into talking trash about other agencies. I know what you're, I know what you're doing. You're just hunting for clicks, aren't you? No, look, I genuinely believe that. I used to badmouth Curtis Brown all the time because I think the podcast you're talking to, I think I just lost an author to them. So I was really angry about it. But the reality is, okay, at the moment, there are lots of corporate takeovers going on because the uh, the pound is currently in the gutter. It means that if you're a large American agency, a UK agency is relatively cheap. And that is why UTA has just bought out Curtis Brown. So what we thought of as like the big beast has just been swallowed up by an even bigger beast. And CAA has bought out ICM, which had a UK branch. CAA are apparently trying to buy out other agencies. Certainly we've been approached. Everybody is, because to a large American agency, British agencies are cheap. Is that good for the large American agency? Yes, of course it bloody well is. Is that good for the authors? No, definitely not, because it becomes a numbers game where authors are pitted against each other and the ones who are making money are retained and supported and the ones who are not are jettisoned. We, a smaller agency doesn't do that. I don't have shareholders I have to respond to. I don't have to justify taking clients on. I don't have to do anything. And I look at the people I consider to be my peers, other agencies of our size, and they are in it for the love. 
And that love hopefully will turn into money at some point, but it's not, you don't start by being in it for the money. If I was in it for the money, I'd go and work for a hedge fund. I should probably have worked for a hedge fund. My mother says that to me a lot, but I, I'm committed now. Well, the tie, the tie goes well with the hedge fund. Thanks for noticing. I firmly believe that authors need support more than they need somebody cracking the whip and trying to monetize them. You know, like writing is a lonely business. And I think the, the last thing you need is the constant anxiety of whether your agent's going to drop you. You know, I, it is only only at the very, very end of a long journey would I ever part ways with the client. And it's not something that I would ever do lightly. I'm more interested in working out how to get better and how to support that author and encourage them to get better than I am looking at the bottom line. Mm. Someone just said, you're making American agencies sound like crocodiles. They are. They're like sharks. <laughs> Vicious. Vicious. Sounds like any writer would be really lucky to have you represent them. So, and this. Thanks. That's true, Matt. I agree. Well, Ed, this has been so great. Thank you so, so, so much for staying and even staying a few minutes after. Maybe one more question for us, because I think a lot of people, they might be uh, intrigued, interested to reach out to you, potentially to represent them. If someone does want to, if they're we're interested in working with you or your agency, what's the best way? Is it through the website? How should someone get in touch? Yeah, the website. Um, have a look and you'll see the details of all the different agents. So I am but one. There are four of us who are accepting submissions at JNA. Our MD, Anna Power, Charlotte Seymour, who is uh, who's just had her appendix about. So everyone think good thoughts for her. My colleague, Michael Alcock, and then myself. So have a look on the website. You'll see a little biog of what we all do. We're very collaborative, very collegiate as an agency, but you can see email addresses and the submission guidelines. If you're sending it to me, please do flag that you attended this. I'm not promising preferential treatment, but I will always try and prioritize somebody who, is, who has been part of a kind of collective and has heard me, has bothered to listen to me blathering on for an hour. That badge counts for something. We loved it, Ed. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers' Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops, and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.